Well, thank you, Randy. I appreciate that introduction, my friend. Uh, good morning, Church at the Red Door. How are you doing this morning? It's so uh, so good to be with you. Uh, we are excited about uh, this continuing progression through the Gospel of Luke. We kind of took a little foray into about a four-week uh, move into the temptations of Jesus. I had kind of felt led in my heart. I don't know, uh, but this last week, were, were you using the sword of the Spirit? Were you shielding with faith and, and using that sword? I, uh, Bob and Joan Thompson sent me this really beautiful picture this morning. I'm probably going to have some glare on the camera here, but uh, of the sword of the Spirit. Are you wielding your sword? Uh, are, you, are you using it in such a way that... Uh, you know, you can overcome some of this uh, garbage, these schemes of Satan that come in. Jesus was effective. As a result, we've never seen, obviously, a more fruitful ministry than the ministry of Jesus himself, but he was a pattern for us. And uh, so hopefully, I've gotten some feedback from you. Some of my uh, dear friends, Klaus and Catherine, had sent me an email this week, and he said they could go back and continue to watch those. And I just a shout out to uh, Klaus and Catherine uh, over on the coast. And so uh, anyway, I'm excited about the progression that we make, but I don't want us to ever lose track of this ongoing process of using, using, your, using your sword. So I'm going to ask you again, I'm going to ask you the question, was there an opportunity this week? Are you more discerning of spiritual attacks? I mean, a lot of times we're just unaware. We just think, they're, again, they're just thoughts that roam around in our brains and uh, we just deal with them. It's just who we are. It's not. We've got to be able to recognize and make a distinction between uh, just a random thought that, you know, we all have kind of random thoughts, but then significantly those that are actually imaginations that emanate from a dark place, which is uh, the adversary's camp. And are you able to walk through those and use those uh, opportunities to actually become stronger? And uh, anyway, that was my hope. So hopefully that was uh, a progression that you have made and will continue to make in your own spiritual journey that you'll become stronger. I got a number of, uh, uh, quite a bit of feedback from you. And you said, you know, I just never realized and others, I, I now am effectively battling this. I recognize this for what it is. And uh, that fires me up. All right, you ready to move on? We're gonna move on in the gospel of Luke. We're still in chapter four. If you have your Bibles this morning, uh, let me just pray one more time. Father, I pray that you'd take this morning. I always say this is the most exciting part of Scripture because the whole thing is so uh, intoxicating to me. You know, they, they saw those on Pentecost that were filled with the Spirit, and they thought they were intoxicated. Lord, I pray that you would give us that same sense, that you would explode this in our imaginations this morning as we look into this extraordinary prophecy that Jesus quotes early on in his ministry, and Lord, that you'd give us insight, wisdom, discernment, and that you would invigorate us in our spiritual journeys, Lord. Uh, you're going to have to do this with your spirit. And I pray, Lord, if somebody's watching this this morning and they don't know you, that this very prophecy might be a place where they look back and they go, when I heard that, I just knew in my heart, faith arose, and I knew in my heart that Jesus was in fact not only the long-awaited Messiah for Israel, as we'll see this morning, but in fact, my king, the very author of my soul, the very creator of the very function, uh, all my bodily uh, aspects, my soul, my spirit, it's Jesus. And I pray that that would happen in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Luke chapter 4. We are now going to visit chap uh, verse 14. Are you ready? Okay, Luke 4, 14. This is beginning to discuss Jesus' public ministry. And Jesus, having been tempted in the wilderness, that's where he's coming back from, returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. Okay, so Nazareth, as we're going to see this morning, we're going to see a particular episode, but he was already beginning to preach the gospel in Galilee. Nazareth wasn't his, Nazareth wasn't his very first public appearance but it's the first one that we have really chronicled, as we'll see this morning. But he was already, and his fame was beginning to spread. Why? The miraculous, his teaching, people were saying, this guy teaches totally different than our rabbis. Something is special here. And, and I'm sure there were be, beginning to be uh, murmurs of, could this be our, our Messiah? Could this be someone that we have been waiting for, uh, maybe to overthrow the Romans or whatever their expectations were? 
And then verse 15, and he began teaching in their synagogues. I want you to catch this. He was teaching in the synagogues and he was being praised by everybody. All right, this guy's extraordinary. You got to go, you know, we kind of get that today. You know, we will take somebody and they become a hero and we put them up on a pedestal. And then soon uh, our culture tends to lift people up on pedestals and then we love bringing them down. And as we're going to see, that's, uh, that's the course of Jesus' life. He knew it was going to be uh, the case. People were going to praise him. And then on the very next moment, they were going to, as we'll see later, uh, crucify him, crucify him at the end of his public ministry. But at this moment, he was being praised by everybody. Let, let me just say this. You know, our culture, I have found, my experience has been that people, many people hate Christianity because they associate that, they might associate that with a political movement. They might associate it with uh, some knowledge of uh, church history, for instance. Maybe the Inquisitions, the Crusades, or some, or, or who knows why they, they really don't like Christians. But very few people are willing to distance themselves from a perception of Jesus and his goodness. They see him as, a again, a good moral teacher. I find that fascinating. Uh, and in some ways, it's been justified. There are many people that have arisen over uh, the last 2,000 years claiming Jesus as the Lord and then have acted as we've seen in the last few weeks. Well, not the least of which was uh, what happened on Capitol Hill on January 6th. Uh, many people were praying and lifting up the name of Jesus and then uh, entering into things that were clearly not demonstrative of the very nature of Jesus. And so this has happened historically. So people associate things uh, with Jesus, uh, and then they associate things with Christianity, and they see a big divide. Very few people are willing to say, we hate Jesus. I don't like Jesus. I think he's, uh, you know, very few. Now, there are some, for sure, but very few are willing to attack Jesus himself, especially those that don't know the fullness of what actually Jesus taught about himself. Now, listen to some of the commentary from other religions, from secularism. Listen to some of these. I'm just going to give you three that really lift Jesus up. I, I mean, these would have been the camps that would say, and he was praised by all. Notice, he was being praised by all. This continues to today. Listen to uh, Tom Krattenmaker uh, in his Confessions of a Secular, which is just kind of an oxymoronic here, a secular Jesus follower. In other words, he likes the teachings of Jesus, but he still considers himself very secular, very worldly, but he likes the teachings. Listen to what he says. I find Jesus' teachings to be an amaz of amazingly high quality and amazingly applicable to so much of what ails us today as individuals and to society. Whether it's our broken politics or our violence or anxiety or racism or even our rampant consumerism. So here's a secular guy, clearly not someone who even uh, espouses the belief in a God, and, and, he, and yet he's not willing to turn away from Jesus' teachings, or at least his perceptions of some of the moral teachings, and I say some of the moral teachings of Jesus. You know, we find that it's just ubiquitous throughout our culture. People are willing to say, I like Jesus when he said this, but I don't like when Jesus said this. Or, or maybe they distance themselves or they say, well, that is clearly Jesus wouldn't have said that about himself. But Jesus is a good guy because he's a, a great moral teacher. And uh, many find themselves, many would have been, even in the time of Jesus, praising Jesus for their particular, whatever their particular perspective on life was. Maybe they saw him again as someone who was going to relieve them from the oppression of their overlords, the Romans. Maybe that was the case. Uh, or, or just someone who, was, who healed them, a healer or something. I mean, they were willing to praise him. But as he began to say more specific things about himself and engage them and their kingdoms, that's when everything turns. In other words, we love Jesus as long as, as long as he doesn't touch our kingdoms, right? If he, if he has something that he wants to give us, but don't confront us, don't confront our lives. Secondly, I think about even Buddhism. Uh, uh, in Jesus through Buddhist eyes by uh, Sister uh, Kandasiri. Listen to what she says. 
So, as the Dalai Lama said, everyone wants to be happy. No one wants to suffer. Jesus and the Buddha are extraordinary friends and teachers. They can show us the way, but we can't rely on them to make us happy or to take away our suffering. In fact, she says, that really is up to us. Now, I, I'm t I'll just be clear. There were so many mistakes that the sister here, the Buddhist sister, says. She said, Jesus is not pointing add Buddha into the way. Jesus is claiming to be the way. I mean, there are many things that, but people love to praise Jesus. Again, as a moral teacher, or in this case, as a, as a guide, as a spiritual guide, not unlike the Buddha. Again, during the time of Jesus, had Sister Kandasiri, had she been there, she might have been praising Jesus. She saw miracles. She saw some great moral teaching. She's, she, was, she would have been very impressed with Jesus. She might have been one of those that were praising Jesus at this early juncture in his ministry. Think even about Islam. Okay, And in the Islam guide, what do Muslims actually believe about Jesus? Listen to what it says. Muslims respect and revere Jesus. Peace be upon him. They consider him one of the greatest of God's messengers to mankind. So Islam has a place, many of you will know this, but Islam has a very revered place for Jesus. Not as God, not as a suffering servant, as we'll see a little bit later, not as someone who laid down their life for their sins in atonement, but again, as a messenger, as someone who is able to convey the truth of Allah. And so again, uh, there were been many, and to this day, who had been praising Jesus up until up until they're confronted with what Jesus begins to say about the fullness of reality and the very purpose for which he came. So again, I mean, this is not unusual. There's a cyclicality to, uh, to our worldview of Jesus. Everybody's willing to say, uh, many are willing to say, oh, we love Jesus. We just don't like what you Christians have done with Jesus. Sometimes they have a point, but oftentimes it's a lack of education about what Jesus said in the fullness of his message and an understanding of what he said about himself. And that's what Jesus is going to begin to address in his next move uh, in Nazareth. Okay, So now I want you to go, let's go to now to verse 16. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Okay, grab your Bible. Come on, this is going to be good. This is powerful this morning. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. So his fame was spreading. He was doing some things in Galilee. We don't know exactly what those things were and the timing of this. But now he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. Now what would happen on the Sabbath is that families from around uh, the area would come in and they would, they would read the Torah scroll. And different families were assigned different times uh, and seasons in which they would be responsible to read the scroll. So evidently this had fallen, this moment had fallen upon uh, the family of Jesus, and Jesus is in the synagogue. Uh, some, this is, there's some debate about this, but there were a couple of seats there, or at least one seat, the seat of Moses, which I think Jesus talks about in Matthew 23, and, and then some suggest that there also might have been a seat specifically uh, set aside for the Messiah. Some think they might be one and the same. I, I, I don't know that that's correct, but there were these seats in the synagogue. So when Jesus stood up, uh, he would begin to unroll the scroll and he would begin to read the Torah portion uh, assigned to his family during that specific season. And that's exactly where we find Jesus now. Now, this is, this is cataclysmic. I mean, this is this is extraordinary. So listen to what he's about to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, verse 17, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now remember, again, for those of you who are kind of new to all this, Isaiah is writing roughly 700 years before the time of Jesus' life. 700 years. We can't Really, that's a long period of time. I mean, imagine what's happened in the last 50 years, just here in, here in, a, in the world, I mean, technologically and everything else. 700 years has passed since Isaiah wrote this. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel 
to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and then there's a comma, and then he stops. He doesn't even finish the sentence. The next sentence, as we'll see, we're going to go back and look more intently this morning as Isaiah chapter 61. But he stops mid-sentence, and then catch this, and he closes the book, or the scroll here, and he gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were, were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, now, you got to catch this. You have to catch the gravity of this. I mean, this is the first public statement where he makes profound claim, the, the claim to be that. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And who is me? I mean, we're going to look at it in a minute about kind of what some different views of that me are about rabbis and their, their constructs and their theological theories. But he closes the book, he gives it back, and everybody's eyes are fixed on him. I mean, here's the guy. He's already his fame is spreading all over, the, all over this northern region called Galilee. And then he begins to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That gives me goosebumps. I mean, here's what Isaiah was seeing 700 years before. Jesus either has the audacity and is a crazy person or Jesus is saying, look, this is me. Everything that Isaiah was seeing, right here. I'm the one that's going to be preaching the gospel to the poor. I'm going to be the one who is setting free those prisoners, those, those slaves to their own sin. It's going to be me. I'm going to, I'm going to help you understand that Everything that the prophets have been seen are being consummated in, in me. And they were, their minds were blown. And these were the, again, these were the same people. Everybody was praising him. And, but has he gone a little too far here? I mean, what, what's going on here? I mean, this is absolutely amazing. Now, one thing I want to suggest here, and I don't, don't miss this, as Pastor Paul always says, don't miss this. I want you to catch this. Most of the prophets, they, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Major Minor, Daniel, for instance, uh, they didn't really fathom, in my view, and I think is the view of Scripture, they were writing, they were, they were being moved by the Spirit, as we'll see Peter suggests. They were being moved by the Spirit. I don't think they fully understood what they were even prophesying. They were limited in their knowledge. There's something that Jeff Hopper, my friend at Lynx, and I had kind of called a progressive unveiling. I think Jeff actually coined the term uh, pro a progressive unveiling of Scripture to the minds of people. Have you ever thought about that you may have more, you do have more information or at least accessible to you, whether or not you know it up here yet, accessible to you more information about the kingdom than even the Apostle Paul did 2,000 years ago? You know, you have to think, the Apostle Paul died before even the book of Revelation was even written, that God gave John on the island of Patmos the book of Revelation. He hadn't seen a copy of the New Testament. Certainly he was the author. He was the one who penned it. Certainly he was taken up into heaven and saw some extraordinary things. Certainly he had a, a, a grasp of much of this, and yet today he hadn't seen history unfold. He, I don't know that he could have fully imagined that the that this faith, I mean, he knew the prophets. I, I mean, he could have had some expectations, but would he, would he have understood that billions of people, to use McDonald's term, billions have been served by the king of the universe, Jesus, the one that he knew is the Messiah, the king, the creator. I mean, he, he knew a lot, but he wasn't privy to the, some of the things that we are privy to today. Even the apostle Paul. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. He said, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, Isaiah, what we're about to read in Isaiah 61, what Jesus just quoted, they, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful 
searches, and inquiries. They were, they were just, Lord, what are you trying to convey to me? I, I see some, sometimes they would see pictures. Sometimes I'm sure words would form and they would write them down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Seeking to know what person or time. Fascinating, I've preached on this. Some of you will remember the message, the Spirit of Christ within them. The Spirit of Christ was already in prophets in Isaiah. So don't talk to me about Jesus just emerging and all of a sudden Jesus came into existence during, during the time of uh, uh, of this Bethlehem uh, birth in a manger. No, Jesus was the pre-existent one, as we've seen throughout Scripture. The Spirit of Jesus was in Isaiah prophesying about Jesus himself. The Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted, the sufferings of the Christ and the glories to follow. Now, we're seeing a little bit about the glories here, and we're going to see that in Isaiah 61. But Jesus stops mid-sentence. The glories will come when everything's set right. The glories will come. The glory will come when people begin to embrace by faith the message of Jesus. These are going to be the glories that come, but they're going to be preceded by the sufferings of Christ. That's what Peter's saying here. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. Isaiah knew that this was going to be unpacked in the future. It's not too dissimilar uh, to the prophet Daniel. And God had told Daniel, you know, you're going to have to, this is, this is going to be secret. This is going to not be understood by you. Close this book up until more the end of time. And then, and then knowledge will increase. There'll be a progressive unveiling. And then people are going to start to understand more of the fullness of what the prophets are talking about. But for you right now, Daniel, just seal this book up. It's, it's not for the appointed time. I've given it to you now. But it's not going to be till hundreds of years from now that this stuff will begin to, these prophecies will begin to be fulfilled. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. That's even us right here in the 21st century in the Coachella Valley. It says, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Angels want to understand this plan. They long to look into these mysterious, redemptive purposes of God. At this time, they were longing to look into the fullness of what God's plans were. The prophets were searching and inquiring, trying to understand. And what they wrote, they wrote. And then 700 years later, after Isaiah writes these things, searching, inquiring, Lord, I, and writing this down, I don't think fully understanding it at all. And then Jesus emerges in this little kind of innocuous place called Nazareth and in a, in a strange place to be in Nazareth in the northern part. Why not Jerusalem? And he stands up in the synagogue and then he sits back down. Some scholars believe that when he sat back down, he sat down possibly in the Messiah's seat, actually claiming to be the Messiah, which might have led to what we're going to talk about next week. And my title was Jesus the Scroll and the Edge of a Cliff. So we're going to talk about that next week. So what was Jesus claiming to be? What was going on? What are the prophets seeing or what were they talking about? And yet they couldn't fully fathom it. I'm now going to have some of our, some of our dear friends, one of my closest friends in the world, Greg Solis and his wife, Monica. Uh, Greg, for many of you who know, and Monica have been ministry partners way, way prior to the Church at the Red Door. In fact, some of the origins of Church at the Red Door started in their home, we called it the living room, years and years ago. They have really laid their lives down to be able to, to, to help us, uh, not just with Church at the Red Door, but just ministry, just my ministry partner. Uh, our offices are there. I mean, it's, it's an amazing couple. And, and Greg serves as a trustee. So Greg and Monica, would you now read for us Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 4? I appreciate it, and I love you both. Well, hello, Church at the Red Door. I'm Greg Solis, and I'm on the board of trustees at the church. And I'm Monica Solis, and today we'll be reading Daniel 12, 2 through 4. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. 
Hope you have a great day. Take care. Thanks, Greg and Mon. I appreciate. Thanks so much. I really appreciate that. I don't see you enough, just like everybody. I, I even Greg. I just rarely see Greg, and it's it's been hard during this pandemic. But thank you so much. Uh, so I, I I mentioned I alluded to this a minute ago, but again, this is Daniel. Seal these things up. You know, many are going to shine like the the stars of heaven. You know, they're leading many to righteousness. But right now, Daniel, you're not going to fully understand that now's not the time. But there's coming a time. When knowledge will increase, and as it increases, people are going to understand it more and more and more. And I think that's the day and age in which we live. You know, uh, Luke, as we get into this later, uh, in, a, in a portion of Scripture, uh, Luke chapter 12, it talks about uh, to whom much is given, much is required. Have you ever thought that that's, a, that's a kind of a terrifying verse? There, there's never been a generation like our generation. Never. Even with the technological technological advances, we have more access to what Jesus said, Hebrew, Greek. I mean, right right on my phone over here. I mean, I've got I've got translations. I've got anything I want. Just at a command, right there, I can just I can find Hebrew and this and pronunciations, and I can have a hundred. I can have a thousand Bibles and translations and different things and commentaries right on my phone. It's unbelievable. We've got now the internet. You can go on, you can find anybody. You want to, want to search something out, you can find it. I mean, think it wasn't just a few hundred years ago. Someone was totally dependent upon maybe a pastor at a church or maybe they didn't have a church. Or, or some, you know, some of you have a Catholic background. Things were done in Latin, they didn't even understand it. And, and so people got involved so heavily and deeply just in religious protocol, but they didn't really understand or know. Many, now I, many have saving faith in Jesus but they weren't knowledgeable. We have been given so much, and so much, I believe, will be required of us. We live in a unique age. I think it's an indication in some ways that we are clearly getting closer. I mean, obviously, we're getting closer, but getting closer to the time where Jesus will come back. I mean, knowledge truly has increased, as, as we've seen, as Greg and Monica read here. So conceal them, and then at the end of time, uh, we'll unpack them for you. How, how did some of the rabbis, what were some of the rabbinical theories about some of these prophecies, even during the time of Jesus, uh, how did they construe some of these unique prophecies? For instance, what, what we're going to see here in a minute with Isaiah 61. Well, there were generally three, and there were maybe more, but three primary ways in which the rabbis would try to, well, how do we even explain what Jesus had just read? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Well, number one, they could spiritualize. Take, for instance, Isaiah 52 and 53, the sufferings of Jesus. Remember, that's what we saw Peter says. Isaiah would go on. Actually, he had already, as he's in Isaiah 16, he'd already been talking about the sufferings of Jesus. In Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant, be beaten and, and bruised and battered for us. And they spiritualized that. They said the Messiah will come. He won't literally go through this kind of beating and mocking and scourging and, and won't die. It, but what he's going to do is he's going to, and that's going to happen to him spiritually. He's going to go through a lot of turmoil and it'll be like, figuratively, it'll be like him being beat up. So they kind of spiritualize some of these things. Others would allegorize. No, the, the, the person or people or land who's going to suffer is the land of Israel. It's us. We're going to be beaten. We're going to be abused. We're going to be, you know, we're going to suffer, and then we're going to kind of rise again in a sense. Uh, this is about us. They allegorized it to say us, and that's completely a, an untenable position, because at the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy, for instance, I believe it's Psalm Isaiah one eighteen, he said, you know, come, let us reason together, and you know, and then he talks about their sinfulness. And so how would they be the ones dying, in a sense, for themselves, for the guilt and for the, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not a very good position, but it was a theory that was held. So they would either spiritualize it, they would allegorize it, or some rabbis even thought that, well, maybe this can be two different pe people. This would be a, there'll be a suffering as there will be somebody who will rise, who will suffer for the nation of Israel, but then there'll be somebody uniquely rise that will be the king of Israel forever and ever on sitting on the throne of David. And so they thought this has to be two different individuals. And then Jesus comes along and is essentially saying all these things point to me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news, freedom to prisoners and captives and, 
And now in closing this morning, we're going to go through fairly quickly, but we're going to go back. What was Jesus quoting? He only quotes a portion of this in this Luke 4 passage. Where was he? He's quoting Isaiah 61. So if you have your Bibles, go to Isaiah 61, and that's how we're going to continue this morning. So Isaiah 61. What was Isaiah seeing? I, I don't know that he fully understood it. I don't believe he did. So he's 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 prophesying here. He's it's clearly a messianic prophecy. Is it two? Is it spiritualized? Is it really us who's going to suffer? Who who? What is going on here? What were the rabbis thinking during the time of Jesus? Trying to trying to unpack all of this. How did how does this work? I'm sure they were. I'm sure they were fascinated, but they were perplexed. They were so perplexed by who this might be pointing to. And then, and then Jesus stands up and says, it's about me. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And this is repeated in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. That's the gospel. It's where we get our word gospel. Good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the, the brokenhearted. Are you, you brokenhearted this morning? Uh, have you lost a loved one? Have you, are you suffering relationally, financially, physically? Or is your heart shattered? Jesus is saying, I'm there to bind it up. I'm, I'm there to be your support. I'm there to love you when you feel unloved. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom and freedom to prisoners. You know, I, when I was early on in my life, I... Uh, I spent a lot of time listening to John Corson. I think he's a phenomenal teacher. I, I'm not sure that I'm on the complete same page he is with, in terms of his eschatology and everything. But he was a longtime Calvary Chapel guy and, and still teaching. He's an amazing I'd love to meet him one day. He's phenomenal. He taught me so much, and I love to listen. He's just a phenomenal teacher. And he talks a lot about this, the meek. You know, Jesus, you know, the, the meek will inherit the earth. And he, he's kind of corny sometimes, but it's memorable corny, you know. He said, this is uh, me, break it up into two, meek, me, ek, ek, right? Meaning, I'm kind of gross. I see myself for who I am. I'm a sinner. I'm afflicted. This is me. I'm afflicted. I'm a captive. I'm a prisoner. So it's always the meek who are inheriting. It's the meek who hear the gospel and go, that's me. I'm the sinner. I look at me and I go, ugh, right? I'm the meek because I recognize my own sinfulness. Now, right now, a lot of people who were praising him are like, they're, they're not on board with him anymore because they're not even admitting that they're afflicted or what well, maybe afflicted by the Romans, but not by their own uh, fallen nature. They're not slaves. Do you remember John chapter 8 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago? Jesus had answered some of the religious leaders because they said, we're not slaves to anybody. Why are you calling us slaves? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Now, that's what Jesus is going to say later in his ministry. But if you hearken back to what he's quoting here uh, that the prophet Isaiah had seen, he's the one. He's not just accusing. You know, a lot of people see Christianity as just accuse, 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 holier than thou platform. No, the Bible will always accuse. The law accuses it. it. It unpacks us for who we are. It uncovers our nakedness. That's what the law is there for. Use it lawfully. But then it leads us. Once we become meek and go, okay, it's me. I, I'm the one with the problem. I, I'm the issue here. It's not political parties and this and that and all the different things that we look out and point fingers and it drives Laura and I crazy, especially, you know, Laura sometimes. She, she hates people always pointing the finger, the victimization constantly and never going, you know, maybe I'm at least part of the problem. Some of you may be offended by that because immediately that brought to your mind true, true racial injustice or, or any other kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not saying there's not injustice, but first it must start with us and our hearts. And that's the message that Jesus came. I came to do what? To bind up the brokenhearted, but to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. These religious leaders are like, we're, we're not a slave of anybody. Why are you saying this? If you commit sin, Jesus says, then you are a slave. 
Listen to Paul in Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Thanks be to God that though you were what? You were slaves of sin. Look, if you sin, if you miss the target, if you're not acting in perfect tandem with the Spirit, you miss the boat. If you don't if you don't live in faith, you're, you're a sinner. I mean, okay, that's the, what the Bible says. It doesn't leave you in that condition. But it takes you to that recognition. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He quotes, that's what Isaiah was seeing. Liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to slaves. You were slaves of sin and became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So now, first, Jesus, no, you're slaves. If you sin, you're a slave. Paul, you were a slave. You gave yourself over to sin. You were a slave of sin. And then 2 Peter 2, talking about some of the false prophets. Listen to what he says in verse 18. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. These are people that were supposed to be the religious. These were the prophets. But false prophets, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Look, if you have any area of your life, pride, what we talked about, some of the, you know, some of the temptations that we fight. If you've been enslaved by pride or vanity or you know, overeating or whatever it is, you know, sexual sin or, 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 or the myriad of things that we looked, appetites, shiny things, throne grabbing, any of those things, you've given yourself over to that, then you become a slave of sin. Here is Jesus, prophesied by Isaiah 700 years prior. If you will admit to being that, I'm here to save you. Did you get the gravity of that? Stands up in this little place, Nazareth. I mean, there may be 30 people there. Who knows what was in the synagogue that day? We're still talking about it. Billions have been served. Billions would get in line behind me to say, he's changed my life. This is true. I was a captive to sin. I was a prisoner in my mind. I, I wanted to commit suicide, I, I, whatever it was. And he's given me hope and life and began, began to change me from the inside out. This is true. Jesus sits down right after he says, this is being fulfilled in your hearing today, and sits down, maybe even in the seat of the Messiah. Isaiah was talking about me. Are you kidding this? This is powerful. But then he stopped. He says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, comma, stop. Now Isaiah, as, well, as we know, and I've told you many times, uh, Isaiah looks out and sees the peaks of the mountain, if you will. And he didn't know the valleys in between, how much time is in between the peaks. He's describing the peaks. And, it, and then he says, and the favorable what? And the day of vengeance of our God. The favorable year of the Lord, that's why Jesus came. Jesus will come back one day, and he will come back for the day of vengeance when he sets everything right. And I'm just telling you right now, I, I beg you, I plead with you. If you've not embraced Jesus as your Messiah, the risen king, the creator of your soul. Get right with him today. Don't wait. I don't know when it's gonna be. Could be tomorrow. Could be before I finish this message, right? Jesus will come back. There'll be a shout, be trumpet blast, and he'll set up his kingdom. There'll be no more tears and everything will be set right. But there will be a separation. He'll be separating the sheep from the goats. Those who embraced him and those who rejected him. You say, well, I think Jesus is a great guy. You know, I think he was a great teacher. Jesus didn't leave you with that option. He left you with one option. Either embrace me and follow me and everything that I say about reality or reject me. I'd rather you be hot or cold, but don't just stay somewhere in the middle like he was a nice teacher, but he really didn't understand or maybe didn't say this about himself. There, he didn't leave that option available to you. Please, reject him. I pray you... Don't reject him or embrace him and follow him and give him the entirety of your life. So he goes on 
and the day of vengeance to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a, a spirit of fainting. Are, are you feeling like I just barely getting by? I just, the spirit of fainting is on me. I just walk down, I go, I have no energy, I, you know, uh, spiritually, emotionally, whatever it is, or even physically. I'm just, there's this fainting. But he's going to give you the oil of gladness. This is his promise. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called what? Jesus wants us to be called the oaks of righteousness. Now, little sidebar here, note. Some would think that, and I'm not, I don't happen to be in this camp, but I think it's a, it's a fair interpretive view, that the day of vengeance He'll come back and set things right, and then all of these things will occur after that. But I think one thing that we know that we don't have to wait to become an oak of righteousness until Jesus comes back. We can become an oak of righteousness today. The, many of these attributes that will be true when Jesus comes back, clearly, apply to the church, to those who have embraced Jesus, not to those who go to church, those who are the church, those who are the called up people, those who are the ecclesia. Now understand, I think these have a dual application. I think two applications. I think he's going to both renew Israel, as we're going to see here in a minute. Cities are going to be rebuilt and dwellings are going to be, you know, reestablished and all these things are going to... I, that's already happening in our lifetime. I mean, even 50 years ago, there were no real cities in, in, in the land that we would call today Israel. And go there now. Go to Haifa or go to Jerusalem. I mean, it's amazing. It's thriving. Tel Aviv. I mean, as I've maybe told you before, I, I, walk, I was walking around Tel Aviv one day. We, I was staying there, right there. And I mean, I couldn't tell whether I was in Newport Beach or where. I was, there was Bentleys being sold and Mercedes and this and high tech and everything else. This did not exist. I think some of those things are being fulfilled in our day and will continue to be fulfilled. And, and that Jesus is beginning to emerge in Israel. It's slow, early, but again, even our church is involved in in uh, the seminary over there. So, but do you want to be an oak of righteousness even today? What does an oak represent? It, it represents long-term stability, strength. Do you want to be an oak of righteousness? You know, oaks far surpass generations. I mean, oak trees can exist for hundreds of years. Be incredibly fruitful. Ezekiel saw, you know, birds of the air coming and nesting in the branches. He wasn't specifically talking about an oak tree, but... I mean, this is an oak. I even saw something online where a church was going to plant an oak tree right in the middle. You know, I think about where, where we typically meet, obviously in the non-coronavirus times at, at UCR, uh, where we meet. When you walk into that foyer, if you look up, there's this amazing uh, art piece. I, I'd love to reproduce this thing and have it in our new building one day. Uh, it's this wire kind of thing, and it's the roots that go all over it. It's this beautiful tree that kind of spreads all over the ceiling and goes up around the top. It's If you've never paid attention, look next time we're able to regather there in the future. Look at that. I think about the oak tree. I think about an oak of righteousness. You know, Psalm 1, how do you become an oak of righteousness? Well, the, Psalm 1 tells us, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, his delight is in the law of the Lord or the instruction of the Lord, if you will. And his instruction, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and its leaf doesn't wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Spiritually speaking, this is an oak of righteousness. The same thing the psalmist has seen. And how do you do it? We take the sword. You take the word, the, the two-edged sword. You take... You take the word, just the same thing we're doing this morning. You, you, you live in it. You love the instruction. Today gets you more excited than anything you'll experience just by reading the word. I mean, I've always said, even if I flop on a message or I'm not interesting or whatever it is, as long as I can read the Bible, there's going to be power in the message. It's become an oak of righteousness. This is what Jesus was claiming to come to do, to establish oaks of righteousness. And let's go on into verse 3. The planting of the Lord. Why does he establish it? So that he might be glorified. See, when we become oaks of righteousness, people aren't going to look at us and go, oh, wow, wonderful, wonderful. I mean, they will in some way, but it's a reflected glory. It's Jesus in us. It's the Spirit of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. 
that establishes righteousness comes by faith, not just by our effort. Yes, we couple our effort with it, but it's his power. It's his righteousness. It's his glory. And then he's glorified. And people see it. Goes on to say, then they'll rebuild the ancient ruins. And they will raise up the former devastations and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Now I think, again, I think this is beginning to occur in Israel spiritually and physically. I think there's a physical manifestation. But I think it also applies to us spiritually speaking. Some of you come from a, a long background. of It's a horror show. You look back at your family and you go, man, my my." My family, my, maybe your father, grandfather, great-grandfather, there were years of just failure. Maybe there's suicide in your background. Maybe there's uh, all kinds of illicit things that occurred. Godless people in your background. And somehow God has reached down and snatched you out of that. And now he's going to begin to repair those years, the lineage that's there. And then he's going to repair these places of former desolation. Generations of desolation. And in Christ, he's going to make you an oak of righteousness. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and vine dressers. It's talking about the nations. You will be called the priests of the Lord. This is what Peter says. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, you become part of this commonwealth of Israel, as Paul told the Ephesians. This is powerful. You're going to be called priests. You're going to be spoken of as ministers. It didn't have to be Pastor Jeff. I mean, forget, you don't have to call me pastor. Just call me Jeff. I'm just a fellow journeyer. But you'll be called a minister too. If you, if you apply your gift, whatever that is, you're a minister of the Lord. You'll eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, well, you're going to have a double portion. This is a friend of mine, George Garza, says, double for your trouble. Double for your trouble. You want a double portion? This is what was applied to the nation of Israel. Even Isaiah had seen this in Isaiah 11. You're going to get a double portion. And instead of humiliation, nah, they're going to shout for joy over their portion. They will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. Again, two things going on. Applicable to the church, Jew or Gentile, the fullness of it. And I think an application too of the very day we live in. A restoration of the Jewish people culminating in their spiritual revival. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering. These are not going to be spiritual hypocrites. These are going to be people that really, they bring it because they love to give. They want to establish the kingdom. They want to see people come to Christ. I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Now, this, this is powerful. Because here again, now Isaiah, some people think it's just Jeremiah. All these prophets are seeing a new covenant coming, a new covenant coming. Jeremiah 31, you know, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the old covenant, based on the law. It's going to be a new covenant. And then Jesus comes and says, this is the blood. You believe into me. That's why we're church at the red door. You believe, you apply the blood, my blood, to the doorposts of your house. If you understand that meta metaphor there. Apply it to the doorposts of your house and you'll be passed over in judgment. It's a new covenant. And then Jesus says, take this blood. It's the new covenant in my blood. He's just talking about what Isaiah was seeing, what Jeremiah had seen, what Ezekiel had seen. And their offspring will be known among the nations. And their descendants in the midst of the people, all who see them will recognize them because they're the offspring of the Lord who's been blessed. I think now even about some of my friends. And uh, I have a few friends that I had friends in college. And they're, they're doing incredible work around the world globally the nation see some of them get amazing amount of uh, following is their teachings incredible and they're wondrous and and i just i just revel in their their success and it's a fulfillment of this prophecy they're known among the nations i will rejoice greatly in the lord my soul will exult in my god he's clothed me with garments of salvation that's why jesus used the metaphor of the the festal robes and the wedding clothes and all these kind of things when he's telling these parables. He's saying, this is me. I'm the one who can give you clean clothes and take away what he Isaiah would see three chapters later in Isaiah 64 is your filthy rags. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. 
Does this sound good to you this morning? Are you beaten up by COVID, pandemic, and separation? Be encouraged. Jesus does this, has been doing it for 2,000 years for all who would be me, ech, the meek. And as for the earth, he brings forth sprouts and the garden causes things sown in it to spring up. So the Lord will call, cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all nations. See, in closing, friends, in these last few minutes, Jesus was always talking about, this is a world thing. This isn't just about Israel. This isn't about just seeing Israel come out, have its own nation, be able to have a nice life on you know, in a particular piece of property on earth. This is not about that. never was. It includes it, but it's not ultimately about it. It's about the redemption of the world. Isaiah was seeing that. This righteousness is going to spring up all over the world. It's going to, like, sprout. It's going to start as a little acorn, and it's going to grow into this, these oak trees. No more shame. Beauty for ashes. No more mourning, sackcloth and ashes, and, and whatever that that picture was, whether it was the ashes of, of animals that had been burned after they'd been sacrificed because of sin or whatever it is. It's no more humiliation. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be joyous. Listen to the language. This is what Isaiah's seen. And now in our tour through the gospel of Luke, Jesus stands up, said, everything that you're seeing here, everything that Isaiah was seeing and didn't really understand, it's me closes up the scroll, sits back down, and everyone was amazed. They were, this is awesome. This is amazing. And yet, as we'll see next week, there was an immediate turn. People are fickle. They're crazy. Our world is crazy. Their understanding of Jesus is so limited. But we're called to make him clear. Make it plain. Make the gospel simple. Live a life of righteousness before your friends. And what we're going to see is we're going to see a transformation here, right here in the Coachella Valley. Will, will we as a church, will we stand up? Will, will we become oaks of righteousness? Will we fulfill these prof, prophecies that were delivered by Isaiah some 2,700 years ago and consummated in Jesus? Or, we, or will we disavow ourselves from Jesus? Say, so we like him as a teacher. We think he had some good things to say about social justice or... or so. Will we do that or will we see him as he is and put him on the throne of our lives? Or will we try to grab the throne back? Well, I be I'm believing this for you today. I'm believing that you're going to put Jesus on the throne. That you're going to lay down your old appetites and you're going to choose to be an oak of righteousness. It'll be his righteousness, but you're going to give him yourself over to the work of the Holy Spirit. So I hope this has exploded in your heart today. I mean, you cannot read this and know what he's talking about and not get fired up. So anyway, I'm going to have to take some, I'm going to have to go sit down after this now, right? I'm, I'm all worked up. I have to relax a little bit, but uh, I hope you have a great Sunday. We love you, Church at the Red Door. We're working diligently to be able to, again, regather as soon as we can. We love you. Have a great week, and uh, God bless you.